the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we're speaking with Adrian Pickley. Adrian's the former Minister of Education for the state of New South Wales in Australia. He's currently director of the Gonski Institute for Education at the University of New South Wales and professor of practice in the School of Education. After his time in office, he wrote the book, 12 Ways Your Child Can Get the Best Out of School. And in 2017, he was made a professor of practice in the School of Education at the University of New South Wales, and has also been made a fellow of the Australian Council for Education Leaders. Now, if you like what you're hearing, please connect with us, Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed, and we're even on Facebook. And we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Adrian Pickley. Adrian Pickley, welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm uh, I'm doing really well. I've my my new life now. Post being a politician, I get to drop my kids off at school and take them to tennis lessons. Even go bike riding with them. Even my 11 year old knocked me off my bike the other day, and I injured myself. But you know that's the great beauty of being a parent, right? The ups and downs. <laughs> I and know, life is going okay. That's excellent. I had a similar experience the other day of running beside my young uh, son on a bicycle who is still learning to to do certain maneuvers, and he he, uh, he knocked me down as well. So we'll 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 uh, kind of uh, nurse our wounds together today from from bicycle accidents. Uh, Adrian, one of the big questions that um, that I have for you comes from your experience as as the role uh, in the role of the Minister of Education, and I really don't think that that role, the role of the Minister of Education is well understood among teachers. And, and like I said, you're in a unique position of both having held that position and now teaching about education. When you're trying to explain what the, the Minister of Education does, um, what do you say? How do you explain that role to teachers? That role of a, a minister really is determined by who, who it happens to be. And I think from, from looking at... Um, ministers for education before me and since and not just in Australia but around the world different different people hand, handle it differently what the way I tried to the way I viewed it was my job was to put the resources or the money um, the um, you know the, the regulations and all of the, all of those various things that, that help schools operate put them Put them at the hands of, of teachers and, and principals and, and schools. That, that includes taking some things away. So making sure you know you've always got to have accountability and all those kinds of things, and making sure it's not too onerous. Now, whether I succeeded or failed, that's for others to judge. But but making sure we've got that balance right, the resources, the right people into the right schools, making those kinds of policy decisions are 
at that macro level, and then and then allowing schools and teachers to get on with with doing the job. That, so that's the way I viewed. I, I viewed myself certainly not as a school teacher or as somebody who runs schools or, or runs classrooms. My job was to okay give give teachers the resources they need, um, give them the the skills, the training, all those things that they need to deliver what they need to deliver for for students. I think other ministers see it a bit differently, and they sometimes seek to micromanage how schools operate, micromanage how teachers do their work, uh, mandating a particular teaching practice. We, we, we tried very much not to do that. So I saw my job as facilitating what schools do because obviously ministers don't teach any children and if you want to make a change in, in education, that change got to occur in the classroom. So what do you need to put in place to allow that change to, to occur? So we tried very much to stay out of the micromanaging of of classrooms and teachers, and I'm, you know, I, I would like to think that's was some of the positive feedback that I got during my time as minister that we that we didn't micromanage schools and we let them get on with it, and we gave them the extra money and the all of those things they needed to do to get on with the job. Now you mentioned something about that. You say that you know you you have to make decisions, and part of those are giving, and some of them. Is, is not taking away, but not allowing. And, and that seems to, you know, be a natural tension, um, but sometimes between governments and teachers at times. And, and, you know, sometimes that can break into to a somewhat adversarial relationship. You know, what are some of the ways that, that you went about reducing that tension that can arise from decisions that you have to make from a ministerial level about funding, about programs, so that, um, so that you could really ensure that these two entities, that's the government and then the practitioners, are working together? One of the, one of the, one of the difficulties is, as a minister, you're, you, particularly when there's bad news, is that you have to deliver it. But it's often, but it's, but it's rarely ever motivated by or, or driven by the minister. So education ministers are part of a government um, and governments are more than just running education. They've got all kinds of other pressures. So budgets, for example, go up. Um, sometimes they go down. The ministers for education get allocated their budgets and sometimes have to make dis- difficult decisions about how you allocate those budgets. Then Teachers and principals and other stakeholders get angry with the minister because of the various decisions that they make. But I think the, under, the misunderstood thing is often those are driven by other parts of government, driven by treasury, finance, driven by the premier or the prime minister, whoever it might be. Um, but the but the best way I always found to manage those kinds of things is to have that very open relationship with um, the representatives the representative groups, so principal groups, um, teacher organisations, in, in the case in Australia, the, the unions are very strong as, as not just unions but teacher representative groups. So we always had very open and frank um, relationships with them. So when we had to deliver bad news, I would tell them in advance of it being made public and I would explain to them why things were, certain decisions were being made. Um, but otherwise, the decisions we made were usually – strongly informed by practitioners themselves. And I took a very deliberate approach of um, taking advice from the government department, from the Department of Education, but then I would go to the stakeholders, again, the principal groups, the parent groups, the teacher groups, and I'd say, here's the advice I'm getting, what do you think? And they'd give me their opinion. And then I'd actually double-check even that 
by talking to individual teachers and and um, individual principals to say, look, here's what I'm being told. Is that right? I'm being told this is what you want. Is it actually what you want? So I kind of triangulated that advice to make sure that it was it was accurate. And I think that was a really effective way of, of people understanding what we were doing and why we were doing it. Yeah. Because obviously when you make difficult decisions, people say, why are you doing this, why are you doing that, whether it's in media interviews or even conferences, you're able to say, well, you know, this is what principals tell me that they need in order to do their job. Or this is what parents say they, they want in terms of how their students' performance is being reported to them or, or whatever it is. You you want to have the confidence to know that the decision you made are being backed by the the practitioners, the people who are doing the work in the in the classroom, particularly. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and that brings me to to a question. I'm interested to know um, was there was there an element of of being minister of education? I mean, we we uh, we often joke that everyone's a, a, an expert in education because they went to school. But you often come up and you you experience education and you see education in different ways. Was there something about being the Minister of Education in New South Wales that surprised you? Or what was perhaps the most surprising take on education when you attained that, that, that position and saw it from a new perspective? The most, the most surprising, when I may, may perhaps not saying so much surprising, but I think the, the, the issue that I, that I grew to become very aware of is that in, in education um, we tend to be um, – sometimes overly kind to adults at the expense of children. So a lot of the decisions that get made, or I shouldn't say a lot, but some of the decisions, some of the key decisions that get made in education are made because we are protecting the interests of, of adults. Now, you know, the interaction of adults and children is the key element of education, of course. The transfer of knowledge and you know, um, behaviours, all kinds of things. It's, it's, that, it's that interaction. But sometimes when... Um, decisions need to be made. We err on the side of what's in the interests of, of adults. So we err on the, what's in the interests of what's in the best interests of whether it's unions or who, who are going to be members of, of unions ahead of what necessar- might necessarily be in the best interests of, of students. When it comes to the performance management of, of individual um, teachers or, or, or even principals, we're very conscious of um, the well-being and the, the interests of the adults sometimes at the expense of, of children. So, you know, we've got an underperforming principal teacher, but look, they're going to retire in a couple of years' time, so rather than go through the process, let's wait till they retire. Well, that's fine, but that's at the expense of a couple of years' worth of children. So I think my, my you know, what one thing I, I noticed was that you know, quite a few of the decisions are, are, are done in the best interest of, of, uh, of teachers and principals. Now, of course, we do act in the good interests of teachers and principals um, because they're the ones doing the work and certainly we want them to be happy employees and effective. But sometimes, I think most people in education would be honest and say, yeah, I think sometimes we do we do put the interests of adults ahead of the interests of children. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree. Now, you've moved on and, and, and so you had a, a good run as the Minister of Education and, and- and you kind of <laughs> have seen schools now from another side, and that is that 
of a parent. Uh, and you've recently um, written a guide for parents on maximizing the education of their children. Uh, uh, Twelve ways to sorry, sorry. Twelve ways your child can get the best out of school. What was it that you saw that inspired you to write a guide? to education for parents. I'm interested to know, because you had quite the perspective. It was very much from my experience as a parent. So I I tell the story in the book that when my youngest child started school, the first parent-teacher interview I went to, I'd been an education minister responsible for over a million school students, regulating, you know, almost 3,000 schools. In New Zealand, well, we have one system. We don't have districts as you do in Canada and and in the United States, we have, we have one system, so it's very big. But I, I went to my son's first parent-teacher interview and, and realised I had very little idea about even the language and the, 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 the descriptions the teachers were using around reading levels and, and all kinds of other things. And we have, a, we have a national assessment system in Australia. Again, I don't know that parents really understood. I mean, I understood it reasonably well and talked to friends of mine um, with kids at school, they didn't understand it particularly well at all. And I thought there's this real disconnect between um, what's happening in the classroom and what parents understand. And I also understand that the second part of this is, so I think there's a lack of information or, a, yeah, a lack of understanding of parents about what happens in the classroom and that disconnect of language that teachers use as opposed to what parents understand. But um, the second element of that is how influential parents are and the out-of-school environment is on the performance of children at school. So what can parents do to actually improve the way they support their children when their children are outside of school? So drawing those two things together, I thought, if I can help actually inform parents about what they can do to best support their children at school, then um, I'm going to be helping education at least in some way. So that's what really motivated the book, helping parents understand what's happening in schools, um, and also helping parents understand that they have a really big role to play in, in how their children do at school. Absolutely. Now, I think about that and, and, and that story, and I think about, you know, you're a fairly well-informed person um, who, who grew up in, in the system. I imagine it just gets worse, or or the confusion or the lack of understanding gets worse if you're for perhaps not from the the area or if you're a new arrival to australia or perhaps you don't speak the language and so that that's got to be quite the barrier for parents to really get involved in their students and their child's education well that that, that's right so different you know depending on your background as a parent you can have even greater challenges i mean i'm a english is my first language i I, i'm I'm a well-informed you know live and breathe education for Certainly, whilst I was education minister, and I still I still had trouble understanding. So, as you say, let alone other people from um, circumstances that didn't make it nearly as easy to understand education. So, then we were trying to help sort of bridge that gap, and and that's the way the book's written in a very easy to read kind of kind of way, and hopefully understandable kind of way. I, I thought after I left being minister, I thought, well, how can I make a contribution? And um, that's one of the ways I thought I could. I want to talk to you about that continued contribution into education. Um, you're now the director of the Gonski Institute for Education at the University of New South Wales. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind um, 
uh, answering two questions. The first one is uh, for our listeners here in North America, Canada, and the United States, maybe just going over uh, what you think differentiates the Gonski Institute, why you think that's an important institution, but also what inspires you to stay in the field of education after leaving politics. I mean, that wasn't your your background. I'm interested to know what it is about education that, that really holds your attention, that keeps you motivated, and sounds like you're really passionate about it. So, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about both of those things. Uh, maybe I'm I'm a you know frustrated uh, non-teacher because I certainly wasn't a teacher. But even uh, even the other day when my my 11 year old knocked me off my bike and I you know ended up on my back on the road, um, I said to my wife the next day, you know, I really enjoy you know I really enjoy spending time with my kids and I enjoy spending time with their friends and I always loved the interaction with schools and with and with with students. So. I, I enjoy it. But secondly, in terms of a, an area of public policy, it's certainly the most important. Um, you know, you, school students or children, people come into school within the school system from the age of about five until at least sort of 15 and then many far beyond that. So the influence on, on society, on individuals and on, on the society more generally of, of education is profound. You know, the links between health outcomes and education outcomes are really closely linked, um, you know, well-being outcomes, all, all of those things. So I think it's, it's a really profound area of, of public policy. So I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in it because um, it's so important. And, and then secondly, the, the Gonski Institute, we've, we've really focused on this agenda around equity and, and fairness. And, and again, I, I represented for almost 20 years a, a constituency in, in – rural um, New South Wales. So in, in Canada it would be like northern the, the northern province the, the northern provinces or the, the north of the various provinces in in Canada, you know, quite remote areas of of, of New South Wales, a lot of disadvantage, low income, um, First Nations communities and uh, and you know it actually doesn't take a whole lot to change the whole nature of those communities in you know, in, in delivering some different education outcomes, not easy to do um, by, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, we're, we're lots of people trying in Australia, in Canada, the US, all over the place. But this issue of, of equity, you know, what, what do you need, what does every student need, um, given their individual circumstances, uh, to give them that equal opportunity in life? And I'm very influenced by the fact that you know, no one gets to choose who their parents are when they get born. You get born with who you get your parents you're born with. But the society more generally has a rep- responsibility to um, level out that playing field um, after a child is born. And early childhood and school is certainly a big way of, of how we try and achieve that. So what's different about the Gonski Institute is that that's the thing we, we're, we're really focused on is this issue of, of equity. How do we make education fair and how do we make it uh how do we give every student access to what they need individually um to to get them to get the most the most out of education and the most out of their lives that that sounds like some really important issues and it sounds like we're also facing similar issues here in north america with rural students as you said and with um equity and access um indigenous and first nation students and and yeah that it's really inspiring the work you're doing so so keep it going the links with the social and political um issues that are, that abound um these days around 
this divide, not just an income divide, but there's even a geographic divide between the regions and, and metropolitan areas. And there's a real social risk there. Uh, there's some social dangers there if that if that divide keeps keeps continuing. I mean, within cities there are divides. Of course there are big income um, wealth divides. Um, but, you know, the regions and, and big cities, and you know, this is becoming a political issue with some dangers attached um, in a lot of Western democracies, including in Australia. So it's important for individuals, their education outcome, but it's very important for our society and even for, you know, liberal democracies. And I, I, don't, even, and I don't think that's overstating the, the importance of it. But, you know, again, one of the reasons I, I'm particularly interested in it. Let's move on to education a bit more generally. And I'd like to know, is there something about learning or education that you believe is true? But when you talk about it, there's some people or maybe even like a, liar, a higher percentage of people that kind of give you give you a bit of pushback about. Um, they don't actually agree with you about what you think is true about education. I would say from a, from a parent's perspective, this this issue about how influential their their role is in in education there there is a growing sense um, that all education is the responsibility of schools and and teachers and I, I have great sympathy with teachers in this respect in that and I don't know what happens in 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 North America when various results come out whether it's PISA or some other measure and it says because I know it happens in Australia where we get these results and and then people start lamenting the the state of education in Australia and they'll say schools need to do more and teachers need to do more and better and and whatever, which, look, is always true. We we can always do better and and do more. But what gets missed out is, okay, what's the role of the the community and parents here in in the educational outcomes of, of students? So, and, and look, just linking back before, part of the reason I wrote I wrote the book. Okay, what, what's the role result? What's the role of parents here? Because even in Australia, and I and I would be um, surprised if it wasn't the same in, in a lot of other um, liberal democracies, where we're seeing the trends in education consistent across um, across jurisdictions, across um, education sectors. So in Australia, we have a a public system, we have a Catholic system, and then we have a, an independent system. We have um, eight states and territories or provinces, as you call them in Canada, and the trends are the same. So, you know, declining, if there's declining trends, the decline is the same across New South Wales as it is Victoria, as it is Western Australia, and it's the same across the public school sector, the independent school and the Catholic school sector, which says to me there is something broader going on here. There is... There is something more than just what the Catholics are doing or what the Victorian government is. There is something more systemic and cultural here. But that does, you know, it's very hard to get across to parents and to even to media to have a look, little bit of a deeper look at what's what's actually going on in in, in education and within our culture, um, even around the value that we place on education, the pressure we put on schools. Around performance, are we just handing out kids to schools and saying they're all your responsibility? Because we don't, I don't think we used to, but more and more we we do now. Maybe as as parents get busier, uh, more of that education responsibilities is cast onto onto schools. 
you know, what role does technology play, uh, all of those kinds of things. So I'm, you know, I'm not sure if my thesis is correct, but um, I've got to say from the data I've seen, there is something broader going on, and I can, if I just speak for Australia, there's something broader going on in Australia, Australian education than just what's happening in schools. Uh, but I don't think as a country we kind of really had a particularly good discussion about that uh, yet. I agree with you, and I think that the beginnings of that discussion are happening. People are starting to question here in Canada as well, what are the impacts of this culture and the uh, shifting nature of um, the parental and school responsibilities and what that, that kind of means for not just education, but just overall childhood and development and growth. So I, I'm really happy that other people are having those conversations, especially at a more formal level. And so that really makes me makes me happy and, and, and makes That's me think good. we're headed in the right direction, right? We're talking about the right things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm also interested in learning environments, and you've seen quite a few of those. When you think back to the best learning experiences that you've had, what was it about them that made it so good? Was it the people? Was it the place? Uh, what is it about those best learning experiences that you feel um, was the element that made them powerful? Well, this is a great this question I always love to ask um, students. Uh, and not not just students in schools, but whenever I run into, um, well, you know, if we're having dinner with friends and they bring their children, you know, whether they're in their first year of school or they've, uh, or even if they've finished school, to ask them, you know, who who's the which ones of the teachers you remember the most and why do you think they were the most effective? But then I also ask, you know, what are the what are the school teachers you thought were the worst and why? And and it does correlate even with, with with my recollection of my time as a as a student. I always thought the best the best environments had teachers that you knew were committed to your best interests, not just your academic best interests, but your well being best interests. They they were they were concerned for you. They and knew they were, and it, and it wasn't even because they told you they were. I think we're all you know in pretty good you know intuitively pretty good at picking up who's interested in my interests and uh, students probably, children probably more than adults. And I think parent, children can just understand, just get it when when they know that teachers are teaching because they love the job. They are interested in the student and that they are interested in the work, that, the subject that they're teaching. And, I, and, I, and my, my best experience with teachers were, were teachers that loved the content they were teaching. Um, Particularly in high school and then and primary school, teachers who you just know were enjoying their job and and um, you know and, and and again a lot of kids will say teachers that have a good sense of humour, teachers who liked me and that I liked them. Um, uh, it's all about the people. I don't, I don't think the the environment. I mean, it's got to be a nice environment. I think a physical environment. I think physical environments, like if you're an adult and you're working somewhere. When you walk into somewhere that's nice, clean, tidy, well maintained, um, you have a greater you have a greater sense of sort of personal happiness than if you walk in, walk into somewhere and you know the doors are falling off their hinges and and the, and, the, and there's rips in the carpet. I think it's even more important for schools because what, is, what that actually says is how much um, 
how much the system values you as a student is is reflected in the condition of the buildings and the classrooms that you're in. Now, it's a factor, but by far and away the biggest factor, of course, are the people who are who are there. And um, yeah, I think children can intuitively understand and perceive teachers who they they know have their best interests at heart. And I would say unanimously, every kid I've asked that question has said that I like the teachers because I think they liked me too. Now, um, do you have a lesson? And what I mean by the lesson is a lesson that was informed through a success or a failure, maybe even a favorite success or failure, that when you think back and you think about that particular experience, you say, oh, yeah, it was then I learned about this, and I'll I'll remember that for always. In my experience at school, or as my in my experience as a as a as a politician and as a as a minister, I, I think it could be either because I, I imagine that many of your experiences as a politician were probably inform teachers as well. I think probably the, probably the the, the and, I'll, and I'll say this from a minister's perspective, and it actually goes back to your first question. Um, in that you, you have to make difficult decisions. You know, in any leadership role, you have to make difficult decisions that you're not going to make everybody happy. Um, you know, leadership is not management. When I see leaders who manage rather than lead are people who, who are trying to keep everybody happy. And they don't make the right decisions for the organisation or for the team they lead. They make decisions because they're just trying to manage their way through without upsetting people. And I think that's... A problem. So, um, I think those, those lessons for me is um, you got to be happy to you got in a leadership role as a minister or in any leadership role, even as a school principal, you've got to be prepared to upset people and lose friends in the best interests of the organisation that you're leading, and especially for a school. If you're really considering the best interests of children, sometimes you are going to make decisions that are going to lose you grown-up friends. Because your number one priority is the interests of the children that you serve. Not an easy thing to do. Leadership's not a position you want to be in if you want to make friends. Um, but it's but it's what you but it's what you um, it's what you have to do. The second thing I would say, kind of associated with that, is, and I would say this more so as a minister than as a uh, that would be an experience for a principal. And that is, as a minister, you're inevitably going to. Irritate people, annoy people. <laughs> I won't use bad language. Uh, the important thing is not to get them all irritated at the same time. Uh, would be my my advice to um, any any um, current or future ministers. You know, you do have to make decisions, as I say, budget decisions. Um, you know, decisions about particularly anything to do with um, industrial relations. You are going to annoy people. Just don't annoy them all at the same time. Don't get all the teachers offside. Um, and get all the principals offside and get all the parents offside all at the same time. That's a disaster. You are going to make decisions that are going to get teachers offside at one stage, but just try and keep the other two onside. Spread and the love. Inevitably you're, going to, you're going to make decisions that are going to get parents offside. Just make sure you don't get all three of them offside at the same time because that's a real problem. <laughs> and that happens in the principalship as well, so that's a good point. Hey, here's a, here's well, a couple it's all about It's also about staging um, staging decisions. You know, you, you got to think about that too. You can come in as a new leader and say, "Right, I'm changing everything all at once," and you end up getting everybody offside, and in the end, you end up changing nothing. Um, 
So, you know, there's also that, a bit of deeper thinking about leadership, about how you stage this. What can you get? What can you change um, while still keeping the organization together? Yeah. A couple quicker questions. Do you have a favorite app, website, film, something that you really like that's um, maybe affecting your life You like uh, that you use uh, uh, quite a lot right now? Well, look, I'm, I'm, I, I try to stay off the technology. I, I don't do social media generally. I, I use Twitter because quite a few education folk use, use Twitter. But again, I, I never tweet anything about my personal life. It's usually always education-related. I don't do Facebook or anything. Yeah, you know, I just find them massive time wasters. No, don't tell my wife I said this, but, you know, or no, I tell her myself. Now, she, she uses Facebook every now and then. I just think, oh, it's such a time waste. And it gets people so agitated. I don't know why they do it. Um, but, but in terms of, look, the app I do use is a, is a cycling app. It's a training app called uh, the Suffer Fest. I don't want to put in a plug for it, but, you know, it's a good, it's a good way of, uh, of doing training in the garage. I mean, we don't get the minus 30, 40-degree temperatures you do in Canada, but, um, you know, sometimes it gets a bit cold and a bit wet here, so I, I use that. Um, no. Websites. So I, I tend to stay off. I tend to stay. I, I get easily bored with um, websites and um, and, uh, and and apps. Um, games. I don't use any games. But uh, my favourite movie is probably um, Couple Life of Brian. is a, is a great movie because I'm I'm a Catholic, but I'm a sceptical Catholic, and I think it's a really clever movie about the 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 weaknesses of the Catholic and oh, I shouldn't say Catholic around the Christian churches, you know. So I, you know, I, I just have a personal interest in that. And then, um, I, you know, I've got to say, I do like the Godfather. I've got, I, I do like the Godfather movies. You know, the ruthlessness of it. I mean, not the killing, of course, but you know, the ruth, the ruthless decision making. Um, you know, I find quite quite confronting. I, I don't emulate any of it, of course, but. <laughs> Um, you know, it's a great movie. I'm doing uh, a battalion back. This is a bit of a side uh, question. I don't often ask this question, but I imagine as a minister or even as a politician, you're pretty in tuned with the news. Um, and you're probably looking at things that were going on and, and kind of keeping abreast. Is that is that something you, you still do? Are you still kind of tuned in to the local and the national news? Are you you're following along? Or is that something you kind of left and were glad to leave and, and be <laughs> disconnected? No, the, the 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 beauty of my my current role is that I can I don't, I can I can disconnect from general. I mean, I watch the news. I'm I'm interested in the news. Always have, always have been. I follow education news. So part of the role in the with the Gonski Institute, you know, we, we're engaged in, in advocacy. So if we see if I see issues in in the news in education, whether it's around funding or whether it's around any anything in education that I think is a threat to um, making Australian education more equitable. If I think it's making Australia less equitable, I'll certainly go out into the into the news and and comment. You know, we, we've certainly said lots of things about our system of national assessment, national testing, um, around issues around school funding and and, and various other things, uh, including criticising my own side of politics. Um, you know, we are, I was in a centre right government that are still in government uh, at, a, at a state provincial level and are the same political party that are in govern, government in the federal government. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been, I've praised them in, for some things and certainly been critical of them in others. So, yes, I do stay involved, but it also, being out of politics gives me greater flexibility to be able to um, ex- express a view yeah. 
Um, without you know, you know, being part of the government does constrain you because your decisions are the collective decisions of the government, whereas being out just allows me to be a bit, uh, have a little bit more free reign. So I quite enjoy it. I can imagine. Hey, do you have a favorite book, something that you uh, really like that you've come back to often or maybe even recommended to others? Look, I'm a great lover of um, modern history. So, um, and again, back to one of your earlier questions when you asked about your favorite teacher, my, my modern history teacher in, in uh, senior secondary sprang, sprang to mind because he just loved modern history. So uh, most of the books I read, again, much to my wife's um, disappointment, are uh, non-fiction history history books, um, but there is a there is a book that I've recommended a, uh, a couple of times, and it's um, it's a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by a fellow. His name's Philip Yancey, um, and you know, now I've mentioned religion twice, but don't get the wrong idea that I'm that I'm some kind of you know I'm, uh, over the top religious kind of person. But um, it's actually a lot about. Um, it, I recommend it to quite a few people because it's about kind of de-escalating the pressure in your life and, you know, it's kind of lots of it's about forgiveness and all kinds of things. And it's about just kind of de-escalating the pressure in your life. You know, we've, we've become, I've often said this particularly recently, you know, in Australia with you know, very low unemployment, the, the country's never been richer but we've never been so angry as a collective group of people. And I, I presume in Canada and the US it's the same. Pretty much, we see yeah. A lot of, we, we see a lot of US news, right? Yeah. We seem to, be, you know, we've never been wealth. We've never been wealthier generally. Not everyone, of course. It's not evenly spread. But we've never been angrier, and you know, so it's a quite a good book about just you know what, just relax, you know, let it go. You know, you're angry at people, and the sort of power of forgiveness. So that's why I, I kind of like it. It's, a, it's more about just decluttering your mind of the things that make you cranky and, you know. Sounds like a good reminder for these times. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned cycling, and I wonder if you'll bring this up again. Is there one thing that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy, ready to attack the problems and uh, keep going? <laughs> well, other than eating porridge every morning. Again, much of the disgust of my children who've tried it and think it's disgusting. But no, I eat porridge every morning, but nearly every morning. Um, but but cycling actually is 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 the is the one thing that I do. Not every day, but um, you know, quite most days of the week. Um, again, it's just the opportunity to clear your mind. You know, it's a low impact sport, which is good for a person in their late forties. Um, um, you know, I have a friend of mine who's 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 had written on his on his on one of the um, one of the parts of his bike frame um, the name of a, a psych, famous psychologist because he reckons it's his bike is his psychologist gets on it has time etc. So now I do I do do a bit of bike riding for you know just keep myself um, fit um, fit and healthy but you know it is a good opportunity just to clear the um, clear the head there's no one around. Um, you know, it's just a, 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 a nice thing to do. Anything I don't do is I don't do it often enough. Now, lastly, is there an organization or a person that really inspires you, someone that you're looking to um, either right now or previously really doing great work that you say, okay, yeah, I'm going to be more like them? Well, probably not an individual person, but I've got to say from, from an education perspective, we do look at Canada 
if you look at Canada and, and New Zealand, uh, the, 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 the provinces of Canada, um, and I think Australia and Canada have lots of similarities. Yeah. Our history is actually quite similar. Um, our, you know, culturally, demographically, we're quite similar. Geographically, we're quite similar. We've lots of the same opportunities and the same challenges. And um, yeah, it's just you know, always love coming to always love coming to Canada. You know, it doesn't feel like you're in a separate country when you come to Canada. You know, just across the border in the United States, it's a completely different feel for an Australian. I've got to say. So yeah, we we do look at you know Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia, and and look at some of the things that you've that you've done there, and and some of the great people you've got working there. We, you know, we talked earlier about off 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 tape about you lead and um, um, you know some of the great things that happen um, um, you know right right across the provinces of Canada. Some you know you've got similar challenges with First Nations that that uh, Australia has same geography. Um, but we look at people like, you know, some of the academics you've got there have been absolutely fantastic and led a lot of the work that's been done in, in Australia. There's often talk about Singapore. You know, we're, Australia is in kind of part of, part of the Asia-Pacific. People talk about Singapore, South Korea, Japan. It's very hard to compare Australia to um, countries like that because our cultures are so different. And I even say to Australians, I'm not sure that you want to replicate what's happening in Singapore because Whilst, you know, according to some of the measures, you know, Singapore has a, a higher performing education system, I'm not sure culturally in Australia we want to sacrifice what needs to be sacrificed to actually get to that point. Now, when they're really doing high-stakes testing, we think we've got high-stakes testing in Australia, nothing compared to Singapore. Um, and some of the well-being and, and mental health issues that, that children have in, in places like Japan and South Korea and Singapore, people in Australia don't want that. They, ironically, they want the result, but I don't think they're willing to do what they they do there. You know, the, the the amount of tutoring that goes on in the middle of the night. I don't think we want that. I think Australia, like Canada, we want to keep our culture culture and and all the things we think are great about our countries, and have high performing education systems. But we're not prepared to do absolutely anything to achieve that. And I think that's okay. Yeah, I do too. Hey, what's next for you? What are some of the questions that you're looking at tackling? Maybe some of the uh, initiatives you're looking to uh, forward at Gonski and uh, what can we kind of expect to see yep. you kind of banging about uh, in the next few years? <laughs> oh, look, we, we battle away with some of, the, some, of the, some, of the, some of the things that are still unresolved in Australia around school funding, et cetera. But I mean, a particular interest of mine is uh, around rural and, rural and remote regional um, education as I live in I wouldn't call it Central Australia, but I, but in a regional part of um, a rural part of Australia, and I've lived all my life um, as they've had a big constituency out out this way. And there's this, there is this really big divide in Australia. We, we have a two-speed education system. One's a metro, one's a metro speed. The other ones are rural and regional speed. And um, you know, there's not a lot. Of, there's not enough. I think um, creative thinking gone into how you um, a try and balance balance that a little bit better and and, and uh, achieve some better outcomes in in regional and rural parts of uh, New South Wales and Australia. So, given given my background, my experience, and my lived experience, that is the one area that we really want to uh, dive deeply into. But no, look, we've got an existing um, partnership with Lego. Um, so we, we're doing some work around the impacts of play on 
um, creativity in sort of certainly play in early primary and, and the impacts it has on creativity and particularly from students from dis- children from disadvantaged backgrounds. So again, back to this equity issue, you know, children who've not had as much access to toys and opportunities for unstructured play. You know, when you give them that opportunity, what impact does it have on on their their creativity, their their um, um, their academic performance, their well being over over a longer period of time? So uh, that's an area of particular interest to, to myself and the others in the team at, at Gonski. So yeah, all those issues around around equity and and and, uh, and fairness. As I say, you know, lots of things that that need to be done in rural and regional. Now you know uh, you mentioned that you were on Twitter. Uh, if people are looking to follow along, uh, is that the best place to to kind of follow follow your 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 exploits and uh, the the things that you're working on? Yeah, that's that's right. It's uh, apically MP. So MPs was when I was a member of parliament, but I tried to change it. But according to Twitter, it's very hard to change your. Well, you can change it, but it changes everything else. So. Um, uh, I, I decided to keep it. So it's apically at uh, apically MP is my is my Twitter handle. Oh, look, I find it a I find it a good way to follow what's going on. You know, people tweet links to interesting news stories uh, and the, and the like. Um, I do try and come to Canada when I when I can. As I said, been to your lead a few times and hope to come back again another time. Yeah, we'd love to have you. But as I say the, the similarities between our jurisdictions are are really really close. Now, a lot of your provinces have big cities and then big urban areas, remote First Nations. Same with same with Australia. Whether it's Queensland, New South Wales, Western Australia, exactly the same. So I think there's a lot we can learn from each other. Uh, I absolutely agree, and uh, I've learned a lot from you. So I want to thank you so much for coming on this show today, and uh, wish you nothing but luck in the coming years. Yeah, it's my it's been absolutely my pleasure. Love education, um, and I hope to be involved uh, for a very long time to come. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, Intersection Ed, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.